We continue on in Grace Principles for Parenting with session 11. One of the things that I've been encouraged by throughout this study is just how applicable the truths and the principles are to us individually as well as to how we organize and manage our family life. And I know that we all have different uh, perspectives in here. Uh, some, your kids are grown, gone, raising their own kids, and others you're just getting started. And then folks that might be listening to this message as well just have different stages and seasons of life that they're dealing with. But the scripture is applicable to us. And even when we're looking at it from a particular perspective, we're reminded that it applies to us no matter what our perspective is or what our life situation is. So this evening, I want to focus on protecting your children from idols in parenting. Uh, but it has direct application to us as we protect our own lives from idols as we worship God and worship Him alone. Uh, part of our pattern as we've gone along in this study is to do a review of the week before briefly just to set the stage for what we're doing in the particular session. And the last time we talked about the importance of shaping the character of our children in parenting and we focused in on the scripture passage in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 through 7. And we were reminded that God has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. And our lives are to be shaped in goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, affection, and love. And each of these qualities is added by faith sort of like building blocks to the previous quality. So they build on each other and the whole of life is strengthened. And if these qualities mark our lives and we grow in them and we grow in character in them, then we'll not be useless or unfruitful. And nobody wants to be useless or unfruitful in the kingdom of God. Our faith has to be a growing faith, uh, a progressing faith if we're going to be useful to the Lord in his kingdom. Now, this evening, our focus is going to be on the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read a fairly lengthy passage of Scripture here in just a moment, and then I'm going to zero in on the idea of keeping ourselves from idols and having no other gods before us. So you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 uh, here in just a second. But you'll remember that when God gave the Ten Commandments, he descended on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke. And when he did, the whole mountain shook. There was thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts, and there was all sorts of things going on that were uh, symbols or signs of the supernatural presence of God being manifest there in that place. And if the people came too close to the mountain, uh, they would die. They were terrified. And it's a reminder to us that we are to worship God in reverence and in awe because he's described in the Bible as a consuming fire. So I want to begin reading here in Exodus 20 and verse 1. And as I said, I'll go through verse 17. And then I'm going to ask a question after I read this. So here's what the scripture says. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is in your, within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Verse 13, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So the question is, in light of the Ten Commandments, what is the role of the Ten Commandments? Because is it not true that we are under grace, we are not under the law? Well, I want to give you just a little bit of background, and in part, uh, these categories are essentially uh, man-made categories, but they're helpful for us to be able to provide a framework for understanding the law and what it means that Jesus has fulfilled it, and then what our role is or what our relationship is toward it. And the categories of the law that I would give you are the ceremonial law, uh, the judicial or civil law, and then the moral law that we find in the Scripture. And let me break those down. Let's think through those just for a moment, and I think you'll get the progression as we go along. The ceremonial law literally referred to the customs of the nation. It included instructions on right standing with God. It related to things like the sacrifices, the feasts, the festivals, and so on. According to the ceremonial law, it was fulfilled, and we are not bound by the ceremonial law of that time. So we're not trying to follow along those same patterns in some way uh, in our worship. The judicial law was given specifically for the culture and the place of the Israelites and it covered their cultural responsibilities. And the judicial law was basically how they governed themselves uh, among the nation. Now, admittedly, the judicial law has application to some of our laws because a lot of our law in the Judeo-Christian, uh, from the Judeo-Christian perspective, is actually founded on these things. A lot of the principles of the laws that were given are basis for a lot of the laws that we have today. So in that sense, we still recognize them, uh, but again, we are not bound by the judicial law of that time. Moral law, however, is based on the holy nature of God, and because it's based on the holy nature of God, it is just and it is unchanging. Now let me make it clear here, we are not bound to the moral law in a saving way, because salvation is by grace through faith, and Jesus Christ 
has fulfilled the law. Uh, but it makes sense that because these reflect the holy nature of God, we are to be his holy people, then what would follow is that we would want to obey the moral law, not to gain our salvation, but rather to reflect that we have been saved. Now, it's impossible to obey God's commandments unless we've experienced his grace in salvation, and we are incapable of getting right with God by keeping his commandments. Now, here's how important it is that we understand this. James makes it abundantly clear in James 2 and verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, we become guilty of it all. So if we just break one of the commandments, then we're guilty of breaking them all. And one commentator said that the law is like a chain in that one broken link means that the entire chain is broken. And it shows our guilt before God. And Paul makes it clear in Romans 3 and verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So what's going on here in the Ten Commandments is that God has already delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt uh, before he gives them the Ten Commandments. But he's reminding them, as verse uh, 2 tells us here, that he is the Lord their God. And he's reminding them of what he's done. So he's saying, listen, I, I, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you from the land of slavery. This is what you got rescued from. And in that, there is a parallel. And here's the parallel. The parallel is that the Exodus is a great illustration of our deliverance from the bondage of sin. And when we see that parallel, it reminds us of what's to come in Christ. So when we're reading the Ten Commandments, we're reading about the deliverance from bondage, we're being reminded that there is a greater deliverer who was still to come. And we find that in the progression of the Bible. So we then ask the question, why was the law given? And the answer is, the law was given to reveal the holiness of God. So in the law, we learn about the character of God. We learn about who He is. And not only does the law reveal the holiness of God, the law reveals our sin. Romans 3 says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So think about it this way. The law is like a mirror. And when we look into that mirror, we can see our guilt. We can see just how far we fall short of the righteousness of God. Galatians 3 and verse 24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. We are saved by the undeserved grace of God through Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty that we deserve. And when we trust in him, God imputes his righteousness to us. So I want us to think through these verses that we read about the Ten Commandments. And I want us to think about why we would want to honor God through his word and then how specifically we can keep ourselves from idols and then how we can keep our families from them as well. So if you're taking notes or want an outline, here's the first part of the outline and I'm going to move rather quickly. We obey God's commandments to honor him. We obey God's commandments to honor him. God has given his commandments for our good 
and to bless us when we honor him. Listen to the way Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12 and 13 puts it. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. So what does God say? He says, listen, if you fear God and you walk in his ways and you love him and you serve him and you keep his commandments, these things are for your good. So I like to think about them kind of like guardrails on the highway. Uh, They put up guardrails on the highway because if you were to go beyond that point where that guardrail is, it's not going to be good for you. There's going to be danger. Something bad is going to happen. So if you careen over the side of the highway where, and there's no guardrail there, for example, uh, then you're likely to be uh, hurt very badly, or there's going to be something that's going to be significant in the accident. But that guardrail is there to keep you from, from going beyond that. And that's the way the law of God is. That's the way the commandments of God are. It's, it's not that God's trying to keep us from something that, is, is, uh, that we really should want or that's going to be a better experience. He's trying to keep us from something that's going to harm us. And he promises us his loving kindness when we obey his commandments and when we honor him. The second part of your outline is that God's commandments focus on loving him and loving others. Now, what I want to do here is I want to walk through uh, just a bit of framework of the Ten Commandments to help us uh, think through how these apply. You remember when Jesus was challenged on what the greatest commandment of the law was, he replied in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So let's review the commandments and then emphasize the importance of protecting your children and yourself from idols. Commandments 1 through 4 are how to relate to and love God. Commandments 1 through 4 are how to relate to and love God. The first one is you shall have no other gods before me in verse 3. Now, before literally means to my face. So what that means is God tolerates no rivals. It's the bottom line. God tolerates no rivals. And it's so easy for us to let things supersede our relationship with God And they become, even if they're on parallel tracks, they're actually in competition with God. Now, I'm going to give some very practical suggestions of how this might play out in your family before I'm done tonight. But you get the idea that if we have any other gods or any other priorities that are at the level of where God is, then that's in violation of his commandment. And he says in verse 4, the second one is, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Now, some people have taken this to the extreme to say that uh, there should be no art or uh, there should be no sculptures, there should be nothing that would depict anything that's spiritual. And I think that's a, that's a fitting view if, if that's your conviction. But I think verse 5 clarifies the meaning in that you shall not worship them or serve them. 
that's the main idea is that there's to be no worship of whatever it is or service to them. So if there's a uh, some beautiful piece of artwork, for example, that's uh, depicting something in the Bible, a biblical scene, uh, Jesus in the garden or Jesus with the children or the various things that we see, I don't think that's in direct violation of his commandment. But if it's a personal conviction that you ought not do that either, well, then you ought not do that if that's a personal conviction of yours. Tell you a little funny story. Uh, One time in a church that I previously served, this was not very funny at the time. But at any rate, the church I previously served uh, many years ago, they had this beautiful painting that is the 1950s version of what uh, whoever painted it thought Jesus looked like. You know, he's got sort of brownish blonde hair and the blue eyes, and he's got that very soft, just kind look, you know. And they had this painting about Yay Big, and this painting was hanging over the baptistry. And um, I've learned through the years that it's easier to get forgiveness than it is permission. And I knew that this picture had been up there for a long, or this painting had been, not a picture, we don't have a picture, but I knew this painting had been up there for a long time. And I thought, you know, it'd be really nice if we got rid of this 1950s painting and we like put an actual cross up there. That'd be more fitting for us. So I got an elderly, elderly gentleman who was a wonderful woodworker in the church, and I asked him, I said, hey, brother, uh, would, would you make a, I want you to make a beautiful cross, and we want to put it up there uh, on, above the baptistry. So we take this painting down and didn't tell anybody. And once he gets this cross made, and we put the cross up. And there were some people that were very, very upset. Very upset that I'd moved this painting. Because it had been donated along about the 1950s by the Women's Missionary Union, the, the mission group of ladies. And they knew exactly who had donated it. They knew when it went up and the whole thing. And they were very, very upset with me about this. Now, I would say that would be borderline an idol if you're concerned about a painting that's not even a painting. It's just somebody's idea rather than putting a cross up there. That might very well be in violation of this particular commandment here. Now, they got over it. They ended up moving that painting somewhere in the back room somewhere, and I think it's still up somewhere there now. I don't know. I haven't seen it lately. But um, but at any rate, uh, you got to be careful sometimes when you when you start moving things around in, in a traditional church because somebody probably has some type of connection or history with it. Now, number three is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you find this here in verse 7. I think this refers to taking God's name lightly or, uh, or also just directly cursing his name. Uh, this is a very common violation today. The whole OMG and the, the expressions that go along with that, that's a direct violation of this commandment because what we're doing is we're taking God's name lightly. If we're not directly cursing God's name, we're taking God's name lightly. And we need to be very careful about that because God's name is to be honored as holy. And then verse 8, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, the command to Israel involved both work on six days and on a rest on the seventh. And there are several different primary views of the Sabbath principle, but the principle remains. But I would say to you that it is under grace. Obviously, we're not Sabbatarians and we're not saying that Saturday is the day uh, we go with the New Testament principle because of the resurrection of Jesus, that we worship primarily on, the, on Sunday. Um, but... We all know 
by personal experience that we cannot work without a break and without a rest. And, and I think God designed us that way to remind us that we need him. Now, was God tired when he rested and gave us the example of that after creation? No, he wasn't tired because he doesn't get tired. He gave it to us to show us that there's supposed to be some rhythms of life. And if we honor those rhythms, then we're going to be healthier and it's going to be for our good and our holiness as well. So um, I grew up in a little bit more uh, restrictive background. You certainly wouldn't want to go fishing on Sunday. Um, there are certain things that you just did not do on Sunday because it was seen as the Sabbath day. And I can respect that as well simply because it was from a heart to honor the Lord and to honor the Lord's day. Although I don't think we're bound by that in a legal type of sense. I think the, the spirit of it was intentional and it was good to begin with because it was saying there's something different about at least one day a week because we're going to commit ourselves to honor God. We're going to worship him. We're not going to run as fast and as hard as we normally do. And I think that's a, that's a worship spirit, however that you apply that uh, in your life. Now, commandments 5 through 10 relate to how to love your neighbor. Verse 5, or verse 12 rather, in commandment 5, honor your father and mother. Uh, children to respect and obey their parents. And this also extends to adult children who honor and care for their parents. Um, and this is a little bit more loosely applied, but I think it's especially if we're able to, then we should honor and care for our uh, parents, even as adults, in, in the spirit of this particular commandment. And then verse 13, uh, you shall not murder. Uh, Jesus intended this commandment to include the heart as well as uh, anger. Matthew chapter 5, for example. Uh, and, and I think the reason that Jesus took us another level to our thoughts is because sinful actions always begin with unchecked sinful thoughts. What's in the heart ends up being manifest in the life. And we've got to be careful about that. Same goes for uh, number seven, you shall not commit adultery. In verse 14, sexual activity outside of marriage. This also extends to the heart. Jesus deals with that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27 and 28. Now, before I get too far away from uh, the sixth uh, commandment here also, you shall not murder, I do think this directly applies to the unborn. Without any reservation or qualification or anything else, I think that taking an innocent life of the unborn is a violation of this commandment. And I think we ought not do it. I, I think we should honor life because it is a gift from God. And then the, number eight, you shall not steal. In verse 15, that's theft, robbery, extortion, embezzlement, you name it. If it doesn't belong to you, you don't take it. Uh, number nine, you shall not bear false witness. In verse 16, uh, that focuses on the legal setting, but it also applies to other areas of life where you shouldn't lie. And then uh, number 10, you shall not covet. In verse 17, you ought not desire to obtain for yourself something that belongs to someone else. Now that leads me to the next point on the outline, and that is that worship of God is to be primary in life. Now this is kind of building up, um, and you'll note the progression here in, in this particular Bible study, so let me, let me just recap where I've come from already here. Uh, we, 
we talked about the character building aspect, and then I introduced to you the why of the law, and then we just outlined the what of the law, but now it's building toward this idea of our primary worship of God in life. And I think false worship is one of the greatest evils that we can be involved with. Idolatry is a serious problem, very serious problem. Uh, some of you might remember the name Chuck Colson. He wrote several books. He was a, of uh, Watergate fame many years ago, but he came to Christ and ended up uh, leading prison fellowship ministries and was just an incredible thinker uh, and apologist of the Christian faith before he went on to be with the Lord. And he wrote a book entitled Loving God. And in the introduction, he described how after he came to faith, he tried to learn from other Christians what it means to love God. He was kind of looking for a, just a practical example. What, how did other people understand it? What did it mean? How could he apply that to his life? And here's what he wrote. He said, the greatest commandment of all, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Colson writes, I'd memorized those words, but had never really thought about what they meant in practical terms. That is, how do I fulfill the command? I wondered if other people felt the same way. So I asked a number of more experienced Christians how they loved God. The cumulative effort of my survey convinced me that most of us as professing Christians do not really know how to love God. Not only have we not given thought to what the greatest commandment means in our day-to-day existence, we've not obeyed it. The warnings that we find in Exodus regarding the worship of other gods and idols can, in a way, seem irrelevant uh, to modern life. We know worldwide, for example, like in South Asia, where some of you have been, that the actual worship of physical idols constructed by the hands of men is a modern-day reality. It's like very common. So there's temples that'll be, that are built to this, and there are thousands of different gods that they fashion, and they actually make physical idols out of. But in the West, unless you come from that Eastern-type background, in the West, it's just not common for us. I mean, nobody's typically putting something up over their TV that they're bowing down before and worshiping. In part, that, that makes this issue that much more insidious in the sense that the things that we make idols out of are not as easily seen and therefore are not as easily guarded against. I would submit to you that idolatry can come in the form of pleasure, possessions, other people, power, or prominence in life. And I think about these from a categorical standpoint. Let me repeat that again. Pleasure, possessions, people, power, and prominence. Within that framework, there's all sorts of stuff that can fit that we get caught up in that draws our attention away from God. And anything that we place at the top of that priority list that potentially turns us away from the worship of God is an idol. Now, I want to say here in context, I hear the idolatry discussion used somewhat flippantly at times, 
in the Christian circles because people will say if there's something that you just really like or that you're really spending a lot of time on and that you're really involved with, sometimes it's almost like the legalist side of people that are trying to sound super spiritual. They'll say, well, that's an idol in your life. Well, it may or may not be. I don't know if it is or not. Is, is it truly being lifted up above God? Then yes, it could be. But just because you like it and you spend a lot of time on it doesn't necessarily mean that it is. So I don't think we need to take a legalist perspective here about this, but we need to understand uh, these categories and think through how they apply to our lives. Idolatry in a uh, technical definition is the worship of idols or excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or for some thing. God's covenant with Israel was based on exclusive worship of him alone. The Israelites were not even to mention the names of false gods because if they did so, uh, to acknowledge their existence and give credence to their power and their influence over people was actually an affront to God. You remember also that they were forbidden to intermarry with other cultures that embrace false gods because God knew that that would lead to compromise. The book of Hosea uses the imagery of adultery to describe Israel's continual chasing after other gods like an unfaithful wife chases after other men. And if you look at the history of Israel, it is a sad story of idol worship, punishment from God, consequences, restoration, forgiveness, followed by a whole other stint into idolatry. I mean, it's like they couldn't learn the lesson. They, they, they would go down that road, and it's like, okay, there's consequences from this. This is really painful. God's getting them, getting their attention. Then they come back. Things are good for a while. They're like, okay, well, that, we'll do that again. And it, it makes no sense at all, but that's, that's the pattern that we find. And the Old Testament prophets endlessly prophesied dire consequences because of idolatry. Mostly, those consequences were ignored until it was too late, and then God's wrath came. But God is a merciful God. And he never failed to forgive them or to restore them when they repented and when they sought his forgiveness. So in reality, idols are nothing more than uh, blocks of stone or wood. The power only exists in the minds of the worshipers. And you remember how in the one instance in the scripture, the idol of the God of uh, God Dagon was twice knocked to the floor by God to show the Philistines just who God was and who he wasn't. What about the contest between God and his prophet Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in a dramatic example of the power of God and the lack of power of these false gods? The testimony of Scripture is continually, God alone is worthy. God alone is worthy, and he will not tolerate our affection for anything else. And as I've already noted, today there are religions that bow down and and practice these different things. But for us, we've got to be much more careful because they're much more insidious things that draw our attention away. You remember how John closes out his, his book in, in his letter in First uh, John 5 and verse 21? He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Right leading up to that, in verse 20, he mentions the true God, and undoubtedly that was bringing to mind the false God of the heretics 
who had de denied the God of the Bible. And Matthew Henry said, we put 1 John 5, 21 into practice when we remember who God is and why God sent his son. Here's what he writes. The God whom you have known is he who made you, who redeemed you by his son, who has sent his gospel to you, who has pardoned your sins, begotten you unto himself by his spirit and given you eternal life, cleave to him in faith and love and constant obedience. Now, Where's all this idea of idolatry come from? Why, why are people so drawn toward this? Why was Israel in such a mess that they got themselves into? Because the human sinful tendency is to make up a God of our own fashion who fits our desires and our preferences. We want God to fit into our box so that we can control him. Now we know how absurd this is. We know how foolish this idea is. But it's exactly what we do. So whether it be our career. Our pursuit of money. Or our possessions. Or our d excessive devotion to, to leisure. Or even putting a, a relationship that is human. In front of our relationship with God. All that stuff can qualify as an idol. And that the root of all of these is the idol of self. And this applies directly to parenting because our children, just like us, are prone to making idols for themselves. Self reigns supreme. And if we can fashion God in our own liking and control him, then somehow we think we're going to get what we want when in reality we're going to get the consequences of it instead but if we know that God is the valued treasure we will diligently guard against doing anything that violates that John was making it clear in 1 John 5 and 21 that if you know the true God you have the only treasure that's necessary you have the best of the best Guard against it so that you don't drift into one of those forms of idolatry. A story was told years ago about how uh, treasure hunters who were looking to make a, a huge profit were stealing rare idols from the Hopi Reservation. The worst theft happened in 1978 when looters took four ancient stick figures representing the most sacred deities of the Hopi religion. And they said without the idols, there could be no Hopi rituals. And without the rituals, their spiritual life was in danger of extinction. A tribal leader explained that these ceremonies brought all these things that they thought they were after. And without it, they were lost. Is that not a sad description of idolatry? Making something that you think is going to get you what you want. When in fact, you already have everything that you need. If something can be stolen from you, it's not the true living God. He can't be stolen. He can't be taken away. He can't be overpowered. He's our treasure. And that's how we need to see this. Now I want to spend a little bit of time on some common idols for the family. And this is the next part of the outline. Four common idols of the family. 
Our modern culture subtly infuses idols into our families in a way that we are not aware of it, and we end up serving them until we find ourselves wondering, how did we get there? In the knowledge of the holy, A.W. Tozer writes, an idol of the mind is an offensive act toward God just as much as an idol of the hand. In other words, it's not the object that matters, it's how much it is used in our lives. Now, I read this uh, particular article from an organization called For the Family, not Focus on the Family, but For the Family, and they were suggesting some of these uh, idols that are pretty common, and and I would track with these, so I'm going to give you these four, and then I want to build a little bit further on this. The first thing that they mention is the idol of technology or screen time. Now, we're going to get real personal here now because this is the age that we live in, but they said that there is an electronic battle being waged for our time together and the enemy takes on various names whether it be tv or computer or phone or tablet or video game and here's an astounding statistic a recent study showed that teenagers spend a minimum of nine hours a day consuming information from a screen and i think that might be a little bit low while adults consume up to 11 hours And less than a third of those hours are actually work-related. And it's quite ironic that finding time is the number one obstacle that families uh, say they have when it comes to doing a devotional together or having a family time of worship. Yet they find plenty of time to be on the screens. Now, technology in and of itself is morally neutral. Not everything in technology is morally neutral, but I'm talking about the technology. I'm not talking about the product that's being pushed necessarily, but I'm talking about just the the tools themselves. It's, It's morally neutral. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. Now, what comes through that technology can either be morally good or morally bad, ethically speaking. And then how we use it can take it a step further as to whether or not it's good or bad for us. So if that statistic is true, maybe even a little bit low, but we are spending as adults as much as 11 hours or more in some type of screen time, and our kids are spending, let's just use that number of nine hours, how do you think that relates to how much time we're spending in the Word, for example, or in a focused time of devotion? If we're doing good, we, on the high side, might be an hour. For most people, and that's, again, probably an overestimation by far for many people. Now, if we're being influenced by 9 to 11 hours of screen time versus a small snapshot of time in the Word, prayer, devotion, worship, what do you think is going to have the most influence on your kids? Constantly being bombarded by ideas and concepts and ideologies and drawn away from where their heart needs to be. So this is a word of warning for all of us. We need to keep things in check where our minds and hearts and souls are not being overwhelmed. And we need to somehow help our kids do the same and not let this be an idol that overtakes them. Another one that they mention here in this um, particular, particular article uh, was work. 
And according to a recent report, Americans work more hours per week than any other industrialized nation. 47 hours a week on average, 50 plus hours per week for a majority of workers. And the Bible's clear, work is good. We're to work hard, not to please people, but to serve Christ. But if our work focuses solely on prospering ourselves and finding our significance and our identity in what we do, rather than who we are in Christ, then we can cross that line into idolatry. And, and this is a fine line because we've got to work to produce. We've got to work to provide. We've got to work and use our abilities and gifts and so on. But if in a family dynamic, work is the priority over our family, then it can get out of balance. Again, it, this is not something that's morally bad. It's something that can be misused in, in the wrong way and can be unhelpful for us. Uh, the third thing they mentioned is activities. And the statistic that they gave on parents and families is that parents spend thousands, $5,000 per child is not uncommon in things like lessons and equipment and youth sports, uh, practices and weekend tournaments might account for as much as 30 to 40 hours a week that are dedicated to that. And very few of any of those kids are ever going to go beyond the high school level. Um, and sports are good. Again, this is a good thing. This is something that teaches discipline. It teaches working with other people. It can be physically helpful for us. This is not something that's bad, but how do you figure that out as a family to where it's not dominating you? And I'll tell you one of the most significant shifts in family life in the last 25 years, hands down, has been travel sports. It's been one of the most significant shifts. So in an era, and I know I'm a dinosaur, some of y'all are, are fossils, but um, at any rate, we're coming from different generations here. But like when I grew up, for example, people played whatever was available in that particular time of the year. So if it was baseball season, you played baseball. If it was football season, you played football. If it's whatever, you, you just did whatever was available at the time. Now, kids specialize and every parent thinks their child is going to be the one that's going to get the big scholarship. They're going to get the big opportunity. We know typically that doesn't, that's not what happens because this is so competitive. But what it is, it's a really good money-making opportunity uh, for the people that are running these travel leagues that are, that, that are promoting all these things. And if we're not careful, rather than keeping those things in balance, um, they can overtake us. And activities themselves that are good and wholesome and healthy, they can dominate our family, and then they're not good and wholesome and healthy. And I know for our family, we had to make some decisions early on. Uh, one of the things that we said was, uh, you can pick one thing at a time, because that's basically all we can handle, because we're going three different directions already. Uh, we're not going to be able to do travel league stuff. We, we had to really narrow it down, uh, and when it got time for uh, tennis tournaments and things like that, we would do it on a very limited basis. If it was in a certain radius of where we are, the furthest we ever went, I think, was uh, Cincinnati one time for a qualifying tournament. Uh, did that limit things? Probably. But you know what? We're no worse for it, and I think our family was healthier because of it, and it took some hard decisions where we said, this is our line for our family. We're not going beyond that line. And we're not going to sacrifice our, 
our witness. We're not going to sacrifice our, our time as a family. We're not going to sacrifice our service in the church. Yes, you can be involved in activities. We want you to be involved in activities. We support that, but it will not dominate who we are. And even then, it was hard. It was like we were somewhere all the time doing something all the time. And it was a challenge. So I don't know what that line is for you and as families. I'm just telling you, you don't have to buy into the culture that says you must do this or your family's a failure. You must be involved in these activities or it's not sufficient. You decide what's best for your family. Don't let anybody else do it. Don't let activities, don't let a league dominate it. You decide what's best for your family. And if you have a conviction about that and you can honor God, then you go full speed with it. Um, but just try to keep it in balance and don't let it overtake you. Materialism is the fourth thing they mentioned. And they said in the, that in the past 75 years, the average size of a house has doubled while the average family size has declined by about half. So the stuff that we have has doubled, but the size of our actual families has been cut in half. And we have an insatiable desire for more, even if it means going deeply into debt. And one of the things I've seen is generationally that has also changed. Things that would have taken my parents decades to accumulate, younger generation thinks they need to have it immediately. And they need to have it better, and they need to have it now. And that'll get you in a lot of trouble because you've got to go into a lot of debt to be able to do it, to be able to carry it, and then you've got to be able to sustain it. God does not deny us pleasure or enjoyment as temporary tenants on this earth, but our families were not meant to be storehouses of earthly accumulation. All you have to do is look at the storage unit uh, just everywhere. People are storing stuff, hundreds of dollars a month. They ain't looked at it in some of them in years, but they got it. That's their stuff. They could have bought it three or four times over for as many times as they stored it. But we got to just accumulate stuff. And somewhere along the way, we've got to say materialism is not going to be our idol. We're not going to let that dominate us and determine that we're going to live in a different way and, and simplify our lives. Uh, Justin Burkholder uh, wrote on four ways to enjoy good things without idolizing them. And I want to I bring the message kind of into a close with these. Four, four ways to enjoy good things without idolizing them, uh, Justin Burkholder. Um, and he said there are things that we can enjoy and delight in without them being idols. And we can avoid the trouble that comes when we elevate these things to the ultimate place to, of which they're undeserving. And the first thing he, he uh, suggests is to rest in God's design. Meaning that God has designed all things for our good and not for our ruin. And we are to use those things according to their design. And nothing on earth is designed to satisfy our hearts. Only God can do that. So rest in God's design for your own life, for your family, for the things that you have. Number two, meditate on God as your creator. The connection here is that good things should lead us to meditate on God. The best things in this world are only a shadow of the goodness of God. C.S. Lewis says it best. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, 
the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And if that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they're only a kind of a copy or an echo or a mirage. Understand that satisfaction can only be ultimately found in God. And if you hold on to stuff loosely and you look at it that way, it'll shape your family life. And you won't be worried about accumulating. And you won't be worried about the next best experience. And you won't be worried about one-upping the other family that you want to look better than. That, that won't be what dominates you. You'll just be satisfied in who God is and who he made your family to be. And that'll be enough. And, and maybe some parents just need to hear that God's enough. Your family's enough. You don't have to reach some level that another family has reached, or you don't have to have some experience that another family's experiencing, or you don't have to structure your family the way another family's structuring their family. You got your family. That's who God gave you. Manage it well and, and honor God. And then he says, remember death, which is kind of harsh, but it's the third one. He said, death levels the earth. In our lives and puts everything into perspective. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes emphasizes when we remember how fragile and temporary our lives are. We recognize the vanity of the things that we tend to idolize. And we measure and judge things for what they really are. Good things, but earthly. Unable to supply our deepest needs and our desires. And then finally... He says, practice contentment. Perhaps the most difficult and most secure step to implement is practicing contentment. You can and should enjoy your work, a good meal, a good TV show, an entertaining movie. But just because you enjoy it or it pleases you doesn't mean it's going to satisfy you. Life is on a higher plane than that. And we protect ourselves from idols when we practice these steps without idolizing them. And now finally, I'm going to give you four questions to help guard against idols. This is the next thing on the outline. We've looked at four common idols for the family, four ways to enjoy good things without idolizing them, and now four questions to help guard against idols. Question number one. What are my priorities in life, and what am I teaching my children to prioritize? What are my priorities in life, and what am I teaching my children to prioritize? Question number two, what do I place value on in life, and what am I teaching my children to value? What do I I place value on in life and what am I teaching my children to value? Question number three. How would I react if I did not have any of the things that I place value on? 
How would I react if I did not have any of the things I place value on? Question number four. What activities cause our family to sacrifice time with God? What activities cause our family to sacrifice time with God? I close with this from the God of promise and the life of faith. Idolatry is misguided gratitude. The essence of sin is misguided gratitude, not ingratitude. As dependent creatures, we all, by nature, thank somebody or something for what we experience and what we achieve. And the ultimate object of our gratitude becomes the object of our worship. In turn, the object of our gratitude becomes the object of our service, since we inevitably serve whatever or whomever we think will meet our needs. This is why in Romans 1 and verse 25, worship and service are linked together. The object of our worship always becomes the master of our behavior. This is the law of human nature, inasmuch as God made us to worship and live for him. The sin of idolatry, whether in the age-old worship of nature or in the modern worship of ourselves, is consequently the same, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry, whether ancient or modern, is thus the futile attempt to look for our lives to anyone or anything other than the one true creator and provider. Whom do I thank when things go well? To whom do I look when things go poorly? What is my source of security? Where do I gain my sense of worth in the world? What am I striving to achieve in life and why? The answers to questions like these will help determine whether we are honoring God as God or whether we are idolaters. Whether that means we are praying to a stone image as in the prophet Isaiah's day, drooling with envy over the car in our neighbor's driveway, or latching on to the latest self-help strategy. Make sure that your gratitude is in the right place and that your worship is of God and God alone. You don't have to make this a legalistic pursuit. It can be grace-based, but you can come to God continually and say, God, how could we order our home, our lives, our family in a way that doesn't fall into this trap of idolatry because we don't want to focus on the things that are temporary we want to honor you and we want to enjoy what you've blessed us with and we want to structure and order our family the best way for how you made us father we thank you tonight that your word is our guide that you keep us from our own self-destruction And you warn us about idols and about things that draw our affection and our attention away from you. I pray, Father, for each family and each child and grandchild that is represented in this room this evening. I pray for each one of us as individuals. We are in a distracted age, an age that draws us away and causes us to to fix our eyes on things that are not going to last to saturate our minds with things that are not healthy or holy or helpful for us. I just pray that you'd give us wisdom on how to filter through those things and that our lives and our homes would honor you and that we would find our ultimate pleasure 
and satisfaction and peace and contentment and joy in you alone. And that would be for your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.